Welcome back to the Gospel of Luke here on the Listener's Commentary. In this session, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. And right from the get-go, we need to just acknowledge that this is one of the most confusing and debated parables in the teaching of Jesus. And the reason for that is because it features a rather unsavory character who appears to be the hero of the story. So how could Jesus hold up a guy who is self-serving and a cheat as a model for us? That just doesn't seem to make sense. And as a result of that, there's been all different kinds of attempts to explain what's going on in this parable. Uh, In a lot of ways, attempts to maybe make it seem like the guy's not quite as unsavory as he seems to be in the story. So people have said things like, well, the landowner himself must have been a bad guy too. Or, well, the manager really only reduced the accounts in the story by the interest. And according to Old Testament law, the the owner should have never been charging interest as it was. So he actually was helping people out and trying to keep the law. Or some have said, well, the parable really isn't about what it appears to be about. It's actually about salvation. And the point is to imitate the two things about the the cheat himself, his cleverness and his trust in the mercy of the master. And so the first thing we just need to do is acknowledge that this is a confusing parable. It's very difficult in some regards. And yet, the more I've read it and studied it and thought about it, the more I'm wondering if we've made it more difficult than we've needed to. The only real problem seems to be verse 8. If verse 8 didn't exist, I don't think there would be really any confusion about what Jesus is saying. Verse 8 is the sticking point because that's where people get the idea that this cheat is the hero of the story and somehow we're supposed to imitate him. I think that's misreading verse 8 and misreading the entire parable and then the point Jesus makes from it at the end in the last few verses. Uh, The problem with verse 8 is this. Who's the master that praises the unsavory manager? Some have said the master in verse 8 is Jesus himself. And others say, oh no, he's got to be the master in the parable. So who's the master? That's one of the challenges with regard to verse 8. The other challenge with regard to verse 8 is, does that fact really affect the point Jesus makes from the story? Does verse 8 itself and the master who praises the manager, does that even really affect the whole point of the parable? So we've got some things to wrestle with as we kind of walk through the details of this parable, just because it is a little bit difficult. Uh, Before we do that, however, just a little bit about the context. One of the important things to note about the literary context is it seems that that this is one of those unfortunate chapter breaks in the Bible. Remember that when Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, when all the Bible writers wrote their, their books, there was no chapter divisions. And so those were added in later. Sometimes they, we don't always get them right. And I think this is one of those places where this chapter break actually harms our understanding and harms the flow of thought rather than helps it. Um, Notice verse 1 of chapter 16 begins with, and he was saying to his disciples. And so it seems like chapter 16 is really 
a continuation of the teaching in chapter 15. But now it's focused on his disciples uh, alone rather than everyone else that he was talking to in chapter 15. Chapter 15, remember, was dealing with the complaint of the scribes and the Pharisees that Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. And so they make their complaint, and in response to that, Jesus told them a parable. So 15.3 says, and Jesus told them this parable. 15.11 says, and Jesus continued. And then 16.1, and he said to his disciples. And so it seems like we're still continuing um, the teaching that started in in 15.3, but now focused specifically on Jesus' disciples, and there's no real break in the story. In fact, there's even a verbal connection. In 15.13, the younger son in the prodigal son story who goes off to the far country and blows his family estate. Well, the word for what he does is squander. He squanders his his share of the inheritance. Well, guess what? That that same word squander is, shows up in 16.1 as well. So there's this verbal connection. We have two squanderers. One, the prodigal son. One, this unsavory manager here in this story. Uh, so this teaching is directed to Jesus' disciples as an outgrowth of the teaching in chapter 15 about Jesus mixing with the wrong crowd. And here's the way this parable and the the point of it is structured. So verses 1 through 8 is the parable. It's the story. And verses 9 through 13 is the lesson that Jesus draws from the parable. That's really important. We don't actually have to wonder what the point of the parable is because Jesus tells us in verses 9 through 13 what exactly what he wants us to learn from it, and that should bring a lot of clarity to what the parable is actually all about. So let's jump into the parable. In the parable, you have a very wealthy landowner. You have a steward, that is, a manager who oversees various farming operations on the wealthy landowner's property. And then you have farmers who run those various farming operations, wheat, olive oil, whatever else they're farming. All right. And the manager has been discovered to be losing money or maybe skimming off the top or in some way He's mismanaging the farming accounts. That's what's going on in this parable, all right? So here's how it unfolds. Luke chapter 16, verse 1 says, Now he was saying to his disciples, remember, no break in the story of chapter 15. He's just turned to teach his disciples a lesson after the lesson of the prodigal son. And so he tells them a parable, and the parable goes like this. There was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. As we noted in the intro, that word squandering is the same word as squander or waste or blowing the family estate in 1513. So the younger son squandered his family wealth. This manager is squandering his master's wealth. And it's somehow been reported to him. Uh, somebody has let the, the the wealthy landowner know, hey, your farming manager, he's actually squandering your possessions. He's wasting your money. He's mismanaging the accounts in some way. And so the master calls in his manager and fires him on the spot. 
Look at verse 2. And he summoned him and said to him, What does this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. So he's firing him. Now his mismanagement or his cheating, his squandering, has been reported to the landowner, his boss. And the boss is like, I'm not going to have any of this. And he fires him on the spot. Now, just to clarify, when he says, give an accounting of your management, that doesn't actually quite get at what is being asked for. The landowner isn't saying, explain yourself. Look, he's going to fire him. He does. For you can no longer be manager. He's firing him. So he doesn't say, explain yourself. What he's actually asking for is the account books. More accurately, that should be translated, hand over the accounts. That is the ledgers, the, the account books with all of the accounts that the various farming operations have agreed to pay and how that all works. So he's asking for the books and then fires the manager. So this manager is fired. He has to go back to his quarters, gather up his things, and hand over the accounts to his master. But before he hands them over, he comes up with a plan. Here's his plan. He says uh, to himself, and the manager said to himself, what am I to do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm too ashamed to beg. I know what I will do so that when I'm removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And so he's coming up with a plan. Um, he doesn't, he doesn't want to have to dig. He doesn't want to have to beg. He needs another job. So he comes up with a plan where they will welcome him into their homes. That is, he's hoping someone will welcome them into their house and give him a job in their house as some sort of manager, some sort of servant in their house. That's what he's hoping for. Um, and when Jesus draws out the point of the story, he describes what this guy is about to do as making friends for himself by means of unrighteous mammon. So he comes up with a plan in the hopes of winning over some of the farmers so that maybe one of them would hire him to work in their house. Here's how he plans on doing it. Here's the plan. Verse 5. He summoned each one of his master's debtors. And he began saying to the first, so he's going to call them in one by one. And he's doing this very quickly because he's got to do this before word gets out that he's been fired. He's got to do this so he can gather up the accounts and deliver them to his master. So he's got a very short time to get everyone together. So he gets everyone together, calls them in, and he says, how much do you owe my master? And the first one, verse 6, said, a hundred jugs of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write out 50. The word jugs, a hundred jugs of oil, is literally baths. One bath was roughly about eight gallons. And so the total that he has to pay uh, the landowner is 800 gallons. That's a large amount, which suggests we're not talking about a small like farming operation. We're not talking about like a, a peasant farmer who's just eking out an existence with a few little crops. This is a large farming operation with a, a fairly wealthy business going, right? Like he, he's going to pay the landowner for running his olive orchard um, 800 gallons of oil. That's, that's what he's going to give them. And then he's going to make some money off the rest. Um, and so this is a fairly sizable 
um, olive operation that is being run on the landowner's estate. And at market value, 800 gallons is, would roughly be worth, from what we can tell, about 1,000 denarii. Now, 1,000 denarii worth of oil. Well, the manager says, this, hey, let's reduce your bill uh, from 100 to 50. He cuts the bill by 50% and has the businessman who's running the olive operation has him write out a new account where he agrees to pay 50 baths rather than 100 baths. That reduction amounts to about 500 denarii. So he's reducing what he has to pay the, the landowner by about 500 denarii. Well, he calls in the next guy. The next guy, he said to him, how much do you owe? And he said, 100 cores of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. So this guy runs the wheat operation on the property. And his agreement is for 100 cores of wheat. Well, a core of wheat is about 10 bushels. So 100 cores is about uh, 1,000 bushels of wheat. And at standard market value, this was roughly about 2,500 denarii of wheat. And so he reduces this one, not by 50%, but by 20%. And yet the, uh, the monetary value is about the same amount. The oil was 500 denarii's worth. Well, at, at a standard market value, 20% reduction is about 500 denarii's worth. So he reduces it by roughly the same amount of denarii. Some have suggested what the manager is doing is eliminating the hidden interest that the landowner was charging that technically, by Old Testament law, shouldn't have been there. I suppose that's possible. Uh, maybe a better explanation is he's reducing it by his commission on the account. Like this manager is going to make some money off the account. Maybe he's reducing it by his commission. And maybe that's the reason that it's the same amount, 500 denarii, 500 denarii, but not the same percentage. Well, that would actually better explain maybe how he hopes to win them over, right? Like he's just going to reduce his commission. They're going to think, man, this guy is so generous. Look what he's doing. He's actually giving away his amount so I don't have to pay. Maybe, maybe he's just straight reducing the accounts. It's not clear. We're not told. Maybe in their culture, they would automatically uh, know because they knew how those things work better than we do. But from our vantage point, it's not 100% clear what this guy is doing in reducing them, other than that somehow he's He's lessening the amount these guys have to pay, and his goal is to make friends with these guys so that maybe one of them will give him a job when, when they realize, oh, he's not working for our, the landowner anymore. And in any case, the farmers probably aren't in on the reason anyhow, right? They, this is the manager's plan. They, they just assume that the master, the landowner, has had a fresh wave of generosity and wants to be gracious to them. And once the, the manager is done with all the accounts, he gathers up the new accounts, now doctored and adjusted, and he hands them over to the landowner and you know, packs his things and heads out. So how will the landowner respond? How will the master over this, this unrighteous man, uh, manager respond? Well, he could get angry. Um, and he could go back to the farmers and tell them, look, that's not my will, right? Like that manager wasn't doing the right thing. And he could recalculate the amounts. And if he did that, he, he would be, you know, he, he, could, he could do that. He just would look like a very selfish and petty man 
rather than looking like the very generous man that he looks like right now, right? So there's a sense of honor at stake in this, and word will spread to other farmers, to people in the town, right? Like, so his honor is at stake. So if he he just gets angry and goes back and says, "No, you still owe me, uh, you still owe me a hundred, you still owe me like whatever the amounts are," right? If he goes back and does that, he's just going to look petty and selfish, and that seems to be what the manager is banking on. He's banking on that the landowner won't say anything and will just go along with it for the sake of his honor. And then when people find out he's looking for a job, hopefully one of them will hire him. That's what's going on here. Well, that's what happens. Well, we're not told exactly everything that happens, but we are told that the master just sort of nods his head and smiles and says, man, well played, my manager, well played. Look at verse 8. Verse 8, the sticking verse, but really, this is the, it's just sort of the, the wrap-up to the story. This is what happens. And his master complimented the unrighteous manager because he acted shrewdly or cleverly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. As noted in the introduction, this is the sticking point in the, this teaching because the master commends the unrighteous manager. So the first question is, who's the master? And it seems almost certainly to me that the master is the master in the story, the wealthy landowner, not Jesus. Although some say, oh, the master here could be Jesus, that just becomes very, very awkward because in verse 9 is when Jesus all of a sudden clearly shifts to direct the dress and says, now I say to you, and he starts to make the point, from the parable. And so it seems almost clearly that the master here that is admiring the cleverness of his manager is the landowner in the story. And he's admiring him not because he's righteous, not because he's a model in any sort of way. He just knows he's been played. He knows he's been had. And so what he really says to him essentially is, well played, well played. You got me on that one. And he knows he can't, I mean, he could technically go back and change things, but if he does, his honor is at stake, and he's going to look like a very petty, selfish man. So this isn't, verse 8, I think this is really important, this isn't Jesus commending the manager as a moral example to his disciples. He, his dishonesty isn't praised in any way. In fact, in what follows, Jesus is actually going to denounce his unrighteousness. So when Jesus draws out the point from the story in verses 9 through 13, Jesus will actually denounce this guy's unrighteousness. But his cleverness is admired by the landowner in the story because he knows he was clever and uh, he, he used his cleverness to actually get back at the, the master, the landowner, and maybe possibly win him a new job. That's the point of the final line of verse 8. For the sons of this age are actually more clever, more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. Oftentimes people who are righteous and trying to follow God aren't actually very clever in how they use their resources and, and how they act in life. That's going to then be the lead-in for the point Jesus is going to make. 
And so if we pay attention to Jesus' point in verses 9 through 13, the story actually seems a lot less confusing and a lot less complicated than we've made it. The point Jesus makes from this parable is not how great the manager was. The point Jesus makes is about faithfulness versus unrighteousness. And that comes down to serving God alone and not money. And so the unrighteousness of the manager is actually criticized in the point Jesus makes. So he's a negative example. He's not a positive example. And we just need to make sure we hear Jesus' point so we can see that. And to hear Jesus' point, we need to keep verses 9 through 13 connected to the parable as the lesson that Jesus draws from it. It's interesting to me, I've actually seen some commentaries where they break 9 through 13 into like a whole new section or a whole new paragraph. Some translations of the Bible actually break 9 through 13 into a whole new paragraph, sometimes even put a subject heading before it. And all that does is confuse us into thinking it's not directly connected to the story. And then that causes us really to, to misunderstand what's going on in the story. So we need to keep verses 9 through 13 connected to the parable because 9 through 13 is the lesson that Jesus himself is, is teaching. This is the point he says he's making. So listen, verse 9, he says, Now I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it's all gone, they will welcome you into eternal dwellings. This is the point of connection with the parable. Use worldly wealth to make friends so that when it fails, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. That's the point of connection with the story. Um, when he says the wealth of unrighteousness, it's literally the mammon of unrighteousness. Mammon was an Aramaic word. Aramaic was the native language of Jesus. So Aramaic word that referred to possessions of all kinds and hence wealth. Use your possessions, all your possessions and all your wealth um, so that when it's gone, they'll receive you into eternal dwellings. Why does he call it the wealth of unrighteousness? Well, it seems that the description of unrighteousness is Jesus' way of indicating that worldly wealth is dangerous and powerful and often connected to unrighteousness. So Jesus uses this phrase, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's version of it when he talks about money and some of that. And so it seems to just be Jesus' way of reminding us that wealth, worldly wealth, worldly possessions, tends towards unrighteousness, has a power that leads people in unrighteous ways. And we know this from the Apostle Paul's teaching that the love of money is the root of all sorts of unrighteousness, right? Um, and so this seems to be the same sort of idea here. So what Jesus is saying is, use your worldly wealth, even though it tends towards unrighteousness, use it in such a way to make friends for yourself so that when the money fails, when the money runs out, when it's all gone, when all is said and done, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. That is, um, use your worldly wealth uh, cleverly for the sake of eternal purposes and eternal ends, eternal habitations, eternal dwellings. In the parable, the manager used money by reducing the accounts, squandering it in whatever way he was. He used it to make friends in hopes that they'd welcome into their homes. 
Here, Jesus says, learn from that and learn how to use worldly wealth in a way for eternal ends, for eternal goals, for eternal purposes. Now, Jesus flushes out this point for his disciples in what follows. First, in verse 10, he gives a general principle. And then in the, the following verses, he gives two specific implications for his followers. Here's the general principle in verse 10. He says, the one who's faithful in a very little thing is also faithful in much. The one who is unrighteous in a little thing is also unrighteous in much. So here's a, just a general life principle. Generally speaking, somebody who's trustworthy and faithful in a small thing, you can trust them with a bigger thing. Somebody who's untrustworthy and unrighteous in a small thing, well, you're not going to be able to trust them with a big thing, right? That's generally the way it works. And this is where Jesus is clear that he doesn't commend the unrighteous manager from the parable. He denounces him. The manager is specifically called unrighteous in the parable, right at the end in verse 8. Um, the unrighteous manager. He's the only one called unrighteous in the parable. And now here we have somebody who's unrighteous. You can't trust him with something more, right? So Jesus is implicitly denouncing the unrighteous man manager by saying, look, he was unrighteous when he was squandering his master's possessions. And then that escalated very quickly. And he was unrighteous in what he did with the accounts. And that's the way it usually works. To be unrighteous in something small means you'll be unrighteous in something big if given the opportunity. Your character is not going to change. But on the flip side, someone who's faithful and trustworthy in a small thing can, generally speaking, be trusted, trusted with a bigger thing. That's just the way it works. Therefore, here's some implications for disciples of that general principle. So the first implication, verse 11, Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, unrighteous mammon, who will entrust true wealth to you? So remember, Jesus has already told us how to use the mammon of unrighteousness. Use it faithfully to win friends for eternal purposes. Jesus is saying here, Look, if you haven't done that, if you haven't been trustworthy and faithful with worldly wealth, who's going to entrust true things to you? And in fact, when he says entrust the true wealth to you, the word wealth isn't in the original. It's literally just what's true. So if you haven't been faithful with unrighteous wealth, who's going to entrust what's true to you? So that's the first implication of this general principle about faithfulness versus unrighteousness. Second implication, verse 12, and if you haven't been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? In other words, if you haven't proven responsible of someone else's things, who'd give you your own things, your own position, right? Your own office, your own, whatever it is, your own fill in the blank. The point of the two rhetorical questions in verse 11 and 12 that draw out these implications is this that disciples need to use their resources in a way that proves trustworthy and faithful. The, the possessions, the wealth, the stuff that disciples have ultimately isn't their own. They're a manager. They're a steward under the great landowner, God himself, who owns all the earth, and their stuff isn't their own, so they're ultimately accountable to their master for how they use their stuff. 
Don't be like the unrighteous manager in the story. That's really the point. Don't be like him. He was unrighteous with the man, uh, the master's stuff. Don't be like that. Instead, disciples need to be faithful and responsible with whatever possessions they have been entrusted because they're actually using someone else's things. So then, Jesus drives home the final point in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and he'll despise the other. You can't serve God and wealth. So think of a literal servant or a literal employee. If you have two bosses giving you instructions and those instructions are opposed to each other or different from each other, you're you're in a difficult spot, right? Like you can't obey two different sets of instructions from two bosses. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, think of the the manager in the parable. The manager in the parable really had two bosses. He had the wealthy landowner and he had money. And he was somehow mismanaging the accounts and squandering the wealth, skimming it, cheating in some way, taking more for himself. We're not sure exactly what it was. We just know he was untrustworthy and unrighteous in how he used his master's money. So he had two bosses, his master and money. And that's how Jesus is driving home the point here. He's like, look, disciples can't be that. Disciples will never be faithful to God if they're trying to serve both him and serve wealth and serve stuff and possessions, right? That just can't happen. Um, Was the unrighteous manager in the parable faithful to his master? No, he wasn't. By serving money, he served himself and was unfaithful to his master. He's a negative example in the story. And so he provides really a contrast to what disciples are actually supposed to be. We're supposed to serve God alone. He is our only master. We use our possessions. We use our stuff. We use our wealth, whatever God has entrusted to us. We use that for God's purposes so that we'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So disciples, us, we need to serve God as our master and use unrighteous mammon in ways that are faithful and trustworthy to God's purposes so that we can win friends for eternity and for eternal habitations.